This is a unique time, and uh, you know, as a as a pastor, there's two major holidays that the whole world celebrates, right? What's the one in winter? Children, Christmas, yeah. And then what's the one in the spring that comes around every time around uh, around April or March? It's Easter, and we know that Christmas is about the birth of Christ. Right? And we fight every year to, all right, let's not get too busy. Let's not get caught up in the gift buying. Let's not worry about rushing to here and there to make our, our social gatherings. But let's make sure we focus in on the birth of Christ. We say that every year. Easter is no different. We could miss it because we're so busy going back and forth to dinners and lunches and having to make that brunch after church service. And we, we could kind of go through the motions. But God providentially has kind of calmed all that down for us. For most of us, I don't think there's any big dinners planned, any huge lunches planned. We don't have to make any reservations at the restaurant. So I believe the Lord providentially has kind of chilled us out to get to us to the essence of what Christianity is about. It's about the resurrection of Christ. And so I believe the Lord is generating some pure worship unto him right now. A, it's a challenging time, and B, we're focused on what matters right now. And so we thank the Lord for this. And hope is a theme today. Hope, the hope of Easter. And in almost 30 years of football, all the best coaches that I've been around have been able to inspire hope in the players and the team. Right? I mean, it didn't matter if you had everything to win or you're struggling. There's something to achieve still. There's something good out there still to fight for, to continue on with. And our Lord is no different. Our Lord is the head, our head. And he gives us hope through the preaching of his word through Easter. He offers up certain hope. This is not just a temporary hope that you may find in sports or, or business, but this is certain hope. Eternal hope. And our hope is directly tied into his bodily resurrection. As read earlier, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15 says this is as of first importance. This is the most important piece of information in all the universe that Christ resurrected from the grave. This is why we celebrate Easter. And, and, and also 1 Corinthians 15 says our hope stands or falls on this historical fact. Did Christ rise from the grave? And we learned from the sermon this morning in the sunrise service, yes, he did. He is risen. He is risen. In that moment, everything changed. The resurrection is so critical to what we believe in as Christians, it has been attacked. The enemy had to uh, respond to the empty tomb. The tomb is empty. Jesus' bones are not there anymore. His body never rotted or corrupted or decomposed. So in response, immediately, the enemy gets the Jewish leaders to create a lie. Right? The disciples stole the body. The, the Jewish leaders told the Roman soldiers. Fast forward to the 7th century, over 600 years later, the Quran was written. The Quran says that Jesus never really was crucified. It just seemed that way. Right? The enemy has to acknowledge the empty tomb. The tomb was empty. 
In late 1800s, the Jehovah's Witnesses come up and say that it was just a spiritual resurrection, but his body was still dead. No, 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 no. Jesus was bodily resurrected. Psalm 16.10 says that his body will not be corrupted, will not decompose. In Matthew 16 and other parts of the gospel, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. This was part, all part of God's plan. He is alive. And the hope of Easter is real for us today. The fact that he rose from the grave proved to us every promise will be yes and amen. So today we're going to be out of Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 through 11. Just these short verses. And as you're turning there to, through your Bibles, I'll be reading out the NASB version. A little bit of context. This is Paul's letter to his church plant in Philippi. Philippi was in northern Greece. And Paul actually wrote this letter out of a Roman prison, not knowing what his future held for him, his earthly future, that is. And he's writing this to the Philippian church, and there's a lot of joy in this book. And Paul's able to exhibit a tremendous amount of joy. He exhorts the Philippian church to rejoice. In effect, he's, he's re exhorting us to rejoice, Evergreen SUV, because his jo this joy was absolutely connected and anchored to a true hope, the true hope of Easter. Okay, so let's rise if you're able to. We're about a Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 through 11. Paul writes, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I counted, have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Verse 10, that I may know him, Paul writes, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let's just pray briefly. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that your spirit would minister your word with power and you soften our hearts to understand what, what you're saying. And I pray that you increase the level of hope in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Just so we're able to follow along, please have a seat. Just, just so we're able to follow along, I'm just going to give you the three points ahead. Three points of hope today. First point. Jesus is the better hope. Jesus is the better hope. Point number two, Jesus is the hope for eternal life. Jesus is the hope for eternal life. And thirdly, Jesus is the hope in suffering. Jesus is the hope in suffering. So the first point, Jesus is the better hope. Verse 7 and 8 talk about this. So Paul's in prison, and he's saying, I, count, I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What, Paul? He says, all that he's been about. Verse 7 says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things that were profit to him, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. So Paul's in prison right now. He's seeing things clearly. He, he saw things clearly before. Now it's even fine-tuned. HD TV. All right? Some of you guys may have HD TVs at home. This is HD clarity here for Paul. He's in prison, and he's thinking... 
everything that I used to be about since I was a little boy doesn't even matter. Doesn't even matter. And as I've, I've visited friends in prison before, a couple times, there was a clarity about it. Even preaching in prison, the, the prisoners had a clarity about it, like what I was about, what my, uh, my, my life's goal and aim was about. Is, does it even matter? What matters? Jesus is better than what Paul hoped for. All right, it says he counted, he determined. So what did Paul hope in? Backing up a few verses, verse 4, 5, and 6, says that he counted on his flesh. That, what does that mean? He, he counted on human achievement, human effort. I mean, Paul's a driven man. I understand this. I've been around many driven people. This man was driven. He wanted to be great in, in the Jewish culture and even in Judaism. I mean, he found his strength, his hope in his ethnicity. ethnicity. His pedigree, he calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin. Tribe of Benjamin is the elite tribe of the Jewish people, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a, a son of Hebrew parents. He wasn't a half Jewish person. He was fully Jewish, full blood Jewish, and he understood the language and the culture and the custom to a T, and he did it. He lived it to a T. The second thing that he, he, he found his hope in is his religious identity. I mean, he says, to the law, I kept it perfectly. He, he prided himself in his performance as a moral person. Not only that, he was a Pharisee. He was a leader among the religious elite. Not only that, he was so zealous for, the, for Judaism that he would persecute this newfound faith called Christianity. He'd persecute these brothers and sisters of ours. And he says, you know what? I'm committed to this. This is where Paul believed that he would be earning his salvation. This is where his hope was in. This is his source of hope. So Paul talks about himself. But then, just like any good evangelist, he talks about himself, but he's able to bridge the gap to, in, to his audience. Verse 8, he says, more than that, check this out, beyond all that, he's saying to the Philippian church and to Evergreen, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. All things, all things. He basically says that Jesus, knowing Jesus is better than any hope that this world has to offer, any hope, any hope. He counted all things, everything. In my old life as a football coach, I mean, the NFL, the things that you hope for are this. You hope for thing, things such as championships. That's what you write in your resume. People ask, how many years have you been in the league? Years of service in the league count as a good credential to be have, had. Your job title is very important. Even certain associations, are you connected to this organization or this coach or these players? This is what gives you strength in the NFL. I mean, perhaps you could think about it in your own industries or in your own life. This is about pride. This is about reputation. This is about status. This is about power. This is about your identity, your own esteem, brothers and sisters. Paul saying that Jesus is better than all that stuff. And being in that environment... You needed to be grounded in good fellowship, good Christian brothers, 
good Christian sisters to be around. And I got to be part of a coaching uh, fellowship with, with Christians. And uh, a man named Tony Dungy is a guy that I respected. And as I was coming up as a young coach, I looked for good role models. He's a, he, and Tony Dungy was one of them. And he, I happened to be able to be part of this fellowship that he was part of. And so these are coaches throughout the whole nation. And you know how we do it? Similar to what we're doing right now. We dial in into a conference call. We didn't even have Zoom back then. We just dialed in at 4.30 in the morning because it was 7.30 East Coast time, 4.30 for us West Coast guys at 4.30 in the morning, morning. And then we'd fellowship over the phone. There was a devotion. We'd pray for each other. We'd share what's going on. Because you need this because this environment could be so intoxicating. Even as a Christian, you could fall into this. You could start buying into the lie that these things are what ultimately matters. I mean, and, and he wrote a book, Coach Dungy wrote a book called Quiet Strength. In Matthew 16, 26, he quotes Jesus and saying, what does it matter if you gain the entire world and forfeit your soul? It's like, whoa, you're right. What does it matter if you gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? And I believe during this coronavirus situation, it's really challenged some of the hopes that we've hoped in, you know, whether it's family, whether it's our own health, whether it's business ventures, whether it's even academic uh, pursuits. Whatever it may be, these are not bad things necessarily, but... Just like Paul got perspective in prison, perhaps the Lord's giving us more clarity on what ultimately matters. And this is what Paul is saying. Jesus is the better hope. Our Lord is showing us that he alone is worthy. He is alone is worthy to be hoped in. And Matthew 13, 44, some of you guys may have it up, is the shortest parable in the entire Bible. All right, parable is a story, truth, taught about the kingdom of heaven. It says this, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy, there is joy over it. Over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Basically, this man is agreeing with what Paul is saying and saying, I don't need all this. I'm going to give all this up and get this field, which has the greatest treasure in it. And this parable is about Christ. I hope, brothers and sisters, we're starting to see this more clearly, that Christ is what matters in the end. He is the greatest treasure of all. Nothing else matters apart from knowing Christ, Paul is saying. And before we get to our next point, I'll raise up this question. Because perhaps you were invited by a friend to be join us online today. Perhaps you've been sitting at, here at Evergreen for months, if not years. And you're not quite sure if you have this treasure. I'm going to ask this question, this next point. Point number two is going to explain how we get this treasure. How do I get this treasure to know Christ? Point number two here. Jesus is the hope for eternal life. Simply put. In verse 9 here of Philippians, go back to Philippians chapter 3, says this, And may be found in him, that Paul may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. 
Paul writes, not righteousness of his own, not according to, according to his flesh, not according to his own human effort or human achievement, he, he, not based on what he could do. This is not how he's going to get to know the Lord. Human effort cannot ever save anyone. We learned that from Friday with Pastor Dan's sermon saying all our good works are like filthy rags, right? And there's only two types of religions in the world. You could group them all up into two camps, right? Two. One, a religion of human achievement or human effort. All right, that's, that's one. That's a false religion. Every single religion on the planet bases on human effort. Those are false. Those do not save you, according to what the Bible just said. The second type of religion is the one and true religion. It's about God's performance. It's about God's efforts. And Paul's talking about a new hope. He used to hope in something else. He used to hope in his pedigree and his religious credentials, his own human effort. Now he's saying, there's a new hope out there. And it says faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. Belief in Christ. Saving belief in Christ. Belief that causes you to trust in Christ. A belief that causes you to to cash in everything you have and say, I want you, Jesus. These things are like rubbish, filthy rags compared to knowing you. This is the type of faith that Paul is talking about. So how do you get to have this treasure? It's simply by hearing and believing in the gospel message. Bible says faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So let me march down what the gospel message is. So friend, if you're out there right now listening, I pray that the internet is strong and none of this is going to glitch or freeze on you. This is the most important thing that you will hear in your entire life. So listen up carefully. I want you to be able to make a, a decision. Do I actually believe this or do I not believe this? This is what God says, how we're saved. It's the gospel. The gospel message, in essence, it means good news. Right? In the simple terms, it means good news. And the gospel message really starts with God. Let's start off with God because he is the author of the good news. Who is God? God is holy. What does that mean? He's perfectly set apart. He is perfect. Nothing could touch him. And God is also the creator. He created you and me and everything that you see. He is the creator. Not a creator. He is the creator. And not only that, he is the righteous judge. He is the one that determines if you're righteous or not. So it starts with God. And like I said earlier, gospel means good news. So let me start off with the bad news first. You got, as Pastor Victor tried to show the children, you have to understand the sadness, understand the happiness, or you got to understand the bad news in order, in order to understand the, the good news. All right, bad news. We're all sinners. Every single one of us, even your favorite grandmother, even your hero, we're all of sin. That, what does that mean? That we've all made mistakes and we've rebelled against God. That's bad news. That's bad news. You cannot stand before God and say, but I'm a good person. I gave a lot of money. I've served people. That doesn't matter. Filthy rags, the Bible says. These aren't my evaluations. This is what the Bible says. 
and all sinners will be judged to eternal hell. It's a place of torment. It's a real place. There is a heaven. That's with God. There is a place called hell. That's a place apart from God forever. Sinners will be judged to hell. And the, another bad news is that we cannot do anything on our own to f- mitigate this or fix this. That's the, that's the bad news. But Easter is about good news, all right? Easter is about hope. And the gospel, the good news says this, God is love. He is love. And the Bible says that God left heaven and came to earth. God put on human flesh, all right? He put on human flesh. He added human flesh, and his name is Jesus, the one we're talking about. Jesus lived this perfect life and perfect existence with the Father, and he came to earth, and he lived the perfect life. He alone can say, I lived the perfect life on earth, because that's the truth. And what he did, he went to the cross and died on the cross, and the created beings nailed him to the cross. And what happened on the cross? Pastor Dan likes to call it the great exchange. In essence, God treated Jesus as if he was the worst of us. He poured out his wrath on his son and treated him as if he was the worst sinner of all. That's what happened on the cross. And really, we deserve to be on the cross, but Jesus went to the cross. Jesus died, but on the third day, the Bible says this, he resurrected from the grave. That tomb is empty. That's why we celebrate Easter today. So friend, as you're listening to this, how does this hit you? What's your response? You could just say, I don't believe this. You could say, I got to think about it. Perhaps someone out there right now, it's pricking your heart right now. You actually feel something. Or you might not feel anything, but you believe this. Your response needs to be that I repent of my sinfulness. I agree with you, God. I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm not going to live for earthly hope anymore. I'm going to live for you, Jesus. You are my treasure. You're my hope now. That's what repenting is. doesn't mean we live perfectly after this moment, but we live for him now. We turn to Christ as, your, as our Lord and Savior. Bible says if you do this, you will be saved. And this is what Paul's talking about. In essence, do you believe that Jesus takes your worst and gives you his best? This is what the gospel message is about. We receive Jesus' righteousness. This is what the hope of Easter is about. This is what hope of Easter is about. I'd say cry out to him right now. And, And honestly, we would love to walk with you. Email me. Go on the website. Find our email. You click on my picture and email me. Let me know that you want to give your life to Christ. You have given your life to Christ. I'll help you. We will help you at church to help you grow as a follower of Christ. You're not not on this alone. You just basically joined the team. You just joined God's family. And we're all brothers and sisters now. Now, I want to also say this. This is a time where suffering has been a huge topic for the world. It's been a hard time. Just because you give your life to Christ doesn't mean suffering ends. I mean, any mature Christian could tell you, in some ways, maybe it's even gotten harder. 
suffering. What happens as a Christian is this. When you become a Christian, now you have to have a different perspective on suffering. Non-Christians may think like, oh, that's bad luck. What's going on right now? This is a bad time to live. You may have like a fatalistic view, like, I don't know, I guess we could do nothing about it. In Japanese, when I was growing up, we, we, I used to hear things like, shikata ga nai. That means like, can't help it. That's just how it is. That's just life. Shikata ga nai. You can't help it. We just got to endure it. For Christians, I mean, suffering is a whole different deal. It's not random or accident. We believe that God is in absolute control. And we believe our God loves us so much that he has a divine purpose in it. And then when you know there's a purpose in it, there could be hopefulness in it. It isn't something just to endure. So for our third and final point here, we're going to talk about suffering. And our third and final point is that Jesus is the hope in suffering. Jesus is the hope in suffering. And what is the purpose, you may ask? Well, let's look to verse 10 here. That I may know him, Paul writes. That I may know him. Now, what, is this, what does Paul talk about in context here, that I may just know Jesus initially? No, no, no. Paul already knows Jesus, and this is an ongoing process. In essence, you could say that I may know him more or that I may know him more fully. This is a lifelong journey for us to get to know our Lord more. Someday we'll see him perfectly as he is, and we'll know him. But in this life, it's a gradual process, and God uses suffering to help us know him more, to trust in him more, to love him more. And that's what the, Christian, the goal of the Christian life is to know and to love Christ more. And how does suffering get this done? Well, let's just look to the verse here. That I may know him is tied into two truths. That I may know him, and these truths are the following words here, and the power of his resurrection, it's tied into the experience and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering. You got that? Those two things are tied into knowing him more. Experiencing God's power of his resurrection and also experiencing the fellowship of his suffering. Now what does this mean, fellowship of his suffering? That means we partner with Christ in suffering. There's no one who suffered more than Jesus. Nobody. Nobody. The physical anguish, the, 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 the emotional uh, betrayals by closest of friends. But the greatest thing that none of us could even begin to understand is that perfect fellowship with the Father being broken for a moment in time. That was a low point. That was as low as it got for our Lord. And so when we fellowship with him, that means we come alongside our Lord and live a life that could be filled with suffering and we, we respond in the way that he did. Partnering in his suffering positions us to experience more of his resurrection power. Partnering in his suffering, coming alongside Jesus Fellowshipping with Jesus in his suffering positions us to experience more of his resurrection power. And the more we experience his resurrection power, the more we know him more. 
See, having a proper view or proper belief system or worldview of suffering gives us hopefulness. Christians, we have, there, there's absolute purpose and hope in it. And as I was thinking about suffering, two things came to my mind. There's two types of suffering, two categories in essence. And one category is, is involuntary suffering, and there's voluntary suffering. All right? I'm going to try to cover those two today and hopefully make sense. Involuntary suffering. Involuntary suffering. That's basically walking with Christ in difficult situations and circumstances. This is talking about the circumstances of life. The coronavirus is uh, involuntary suffering. All right? We, we just, this is just, this plopped onto us. We didn't do anything to do this. It just happened. We live in a sinful, fallen world, and things like this happen. We just, we understand this. Anyone who's lived long enough knows that they're suffering, knows that there's sickness and death. We live in a fallen world. We're not, and none of us were to ask for any of these things happening. Apart from the coronavirus, you know, perhaps you've experienced death of family or dear friends. You know, parents, children even. Perhaps best friends have passed on. Perhaps sickness has been something you've been battling or a loved one's been battling. I know we have brothers who need a kidney transplant. We know other people with heart issues. There's a lot of physical hard things uh, going on. Maybe helping a spouse who's undergoing depression. These are hard things. Parents, maybe you're helping your child who has some physical issues. No one would ask for these things. These are involuntary. I've become, a, I've become good friends with someone in, in my community, and we started a Bible study, and he tells me about a testimony. This man loves Christ. His family loves he and his wife loved the Lord. They loved the word. We're, we're, we help disciple one another. And he tells me a story. He's driving one day. He gets a phone call from the doctors. And this is something that none of us would ask for. The doctor calls him and, and, and says that his four-year-old daughter has leukemia. No one will ask for this. His mind is racing as he's hearing these things. But he describes, instead of being in despair, that he had a peace about him. He just starts praying, and, and he had a peace about him. And, and prays that his, God's will will be done. Completely supernatural response. That's unnatural. Natural will be in despair. My goodness, we, any of us who are parents would understand this issue. We would understand this. But this brother goes on to explain, he understood the seriousness of it too, but he said he had this supernatural peace about him as if God's got this. So fellowshipping with Christ in this in suffering, in these involuntary situations, means that you basically respond as Christ would in these situations. I mean, you lament properly. We've talked about lamenting at church. You're honest with God. You're honest with others who are walking with you. But in essence, 
at the end of the day, after the lamenting, you say, but I trust in you, Lord. This is what my brother, my friend did. He goes, you know what, this is hard. This is not what I wanted for my girl, but I trust in you. And this is what it is. And he gave me this verse. And he was experiencing the power of his resurrection in that moment and throughout even. But this is what, a verse that he gave me, Job 42, 5 and 6. Arguably, for humans, no one suffered more than Job in the Bible that we know of. Arguably. There's a good, chance, good argument that he did. All the things that he went through. He lost his children, his friends turned on him, his wife turned on him, he lost his health. That's pretty tough. Job 42, verse 5 and 6. This is what my friend described to me, what he was feeling. I, ha I have heard of you by the hearing of the, of the ear. But now my eyes sees you. My eye sees you. After this suffering that Job went through, he knew about God, he heard about God, but seeing is way more vivid, is it not, brothers and sisters? This is what my friend was describing to me. That he, he knew about God, he, he had a genuine faith in the Lord, but this just elevated his faith in the Lord that much more. Now he saw the Lord more clearly. Suffering has a way of doing this. Suffering positions us to experience more of his resurrection power. Second type of suffering. Second type of suffering is voluntary suffering. And what is voluntary suffering? In essence, just like Paul, you choose to follow Christ into difficult situations. You're going to follow Christ. You're going to do it his way, but you know you're going to take a beating. All right, you're going to lose friends over this. You're going to lose reputation over this. You're going to lose money over this. You may get beat up over this. You may lose freedom over this. But you voluntarily says, I am going to follow you, Jesus, even if this is a harder way of life. Let's look to verse 8 again, Philippians 3, verse 8. Paul says, all things were like rubbish, trash, dung to him, so that I may gain Christ. But before that, he says this, for whom I have suffered for whom I have suffered. What Paul is saying is this, I willingly lay down my opportunity to be the Pharisee of Pharisees. I willingly lay down my opportunity to be the top dog in, in Judaism. I willingly lay down my life for prestige and fame and prominence. I willingly put my life in harm's danger because I know I'm going to be making a lot of enemies by saying that I side with Christ. He willingly did these things, knowing that he's going to have immense opposition. Well, to know him more. Isn't that like what Jesus did? Didn't Jesus, who was rich, become poor? Isn't that exactly what he did? He willingly laid down his life. As Pastor Victor preached last Sunday on Palm Sunday, he willingly, he was in control the whole time. This isn't one of these deals where he had no choice in this. He willingly obeyed the Father and allowed his, his created beings to do this to him. This is suffering. This is Christ-like suffering when you actually volunteer for this sort of a thing. Knowing that this is going to advance Christ's kingdom, knowing that you're being obedient, knowing that even if it's harder on this side of eternity, you have treasures laid up for you in heaven someday. Yeah.
If you want to be like Jesus Christ, you'll find these opportunities and you'll take them like gold. It's unnatural. <laughs> no one would ask for suffering, but you have a supernatural mind. Our minds are in heaven. We're citizens of heaven. We think differently from everybody else. And here's, a, here's a, an encouragement. Perhaps you are going under some type of persecution or some type of suffering. The more useful you are to the master, expect more opposition. All right? I mean, that's just what it is. I've been uh, spending some time at home just like everybody else. And I've been, you go on ESPN.com and all it is is highlights of, of, of yesteryears because no, there's nothing happening. There's video games and tournaments and stuff like that happening, but that's not sport. So I'm like looking at some, some of my childhood heroes and I, I come across a memory that I had. I come across Michael Jordan. You know, I mean, that, 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 he was the guy in the 80s and 90s for us older guys, right? High schoolers, you'll be there too someday. But for us older guys, we're, we're like thinking about guys like this. And I remember in 2016, I was coaching and we're, we traveled down to Charlotte, North Carolina. And I, my job was in the press box overseeing the game. So me and a bunch of coaches were going to the press box and, you know, they cleared away for the coaches. Coaches are coming and we're walking in there. And there's a guy standing in front of the, the elevator. There's a big guy. And, and I look at him, man, that's MJ. I, I'm trying to be focused for the game. But, but even he had to get aside so we could get in to get to the game. And I thought to myself, well, this guy was a true competitor. And as a player, he, 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 he went through some trials. But before he could be considered one of the great players of all time and win all those championships, those appeared in the late 80s now, where he and the Chicago Bulls went up against the Detroit Pistons, 88, 89, and 90. Three straight years in the playoffs. In three straight years, the Detroit Pistons knocked him out of the playoffs. And they would go on, the Pistons would go on to the finals, the Bulls would go home. And they implemented this thing that was famous at the time. It's called the Jordan Rules. And what that meant is that they would force Michael Jordan to the middle and force him to take double-team, triple-team shots while people are banging on his head and knocking him down and beating him up. And they believed that no one else on the team could beat him. If they shut him down, everyone else won't be able to come through. And he took a beating for about three straight years. But what that did was this. He took it as a compliment and decided to get better from it. You know, and so, so brothers and sisters, if you're scoring a lot of points for the Lord, expect opposition. Expect opposition. What that did is it strengthened him. He got more creative. He was able to use his teammates more. And then 91, 92, 93, three straight championships. He finally figured it out. But he had to go through that trial, that suffering as a player to elevate as a basketball player. The Jordan rules. He remained hopeful because in the end, he knew this would make him better. Although no one likes losing, although no one likes to get ice packs in their head and, and their knees and their backs, he knew he, he, it'd make him better. So perhaps the Lord is preparing you and me for more effectiveness for his kingdom's sake. Perhaps. I'm going to just let, read you a little bit of Paul's suffering here, okay? Paul is another one that suffered greatly 
Job did, and so did Paul. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four 24 says this. Five times I received from the Jewish 39 lashes. That means he was whipped 39 times on five separate occasions. And, and, and the experts believe if you got 40, you'd be dead. So almost at the brink of death, five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, what that means is you, people will throw rocks at your head to try to kill you. They try to kill them. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. He, he sat in the ocean all that time. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. That's Paul. Paul knew suffering. And Paul's choices to follow Jesus led to suffering. John MacArthur, speaking for 50-plus years of ministry, writes, or says, I heard him say this, success is not the credential. Suffering is, talking about for ministers, any one of us who serve the Lord, suffering is. Are you such a threat to the kingdom of darkness that it comes at you with all its force to discredit you, to wound you, to depress you, to make you sad, to make you want to quit? Paul had the entire satanic system amassed against him which speaks of the legitimacy of his spiritual power. Power, experiencing the power of his resurrection. So Paul understood this. And the more we suffer for Christ, the more we tap into that resurrection power. And then when he's able to say things like this, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10, it might be on your computer screen. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. This is God speaking to Paul. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. He got it. There was hopefulness in the suffering because he knew he would experience more of Christ's power within him. Therefore, he would know Christ more. Verse 10, therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, then I am strong. This is what hopefulness in suffering looks like. That's why Paul was able to say, I'm content, whether fed or not fed, whether secure or insecure. That's why he goes on to say, I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And let's finish up here. What happens to this suffering that I may get to know him? And when you know him, being conformed, at the end of verse 10, being conformed of Philippians chapter 3, being conformed or formed or shaped to his death, we get to become like Christ. That's what happens. That's what happens in this whole time. So this, this Easter season, let's have more hopefulness that Jesus is, is the better hope, that Jesus is the hope for eternal life, and Jesus is the hope in suffering. The fact that he rose from the grave made everything good. And I want to encourage you, if you heard the gospel message today and you want to come to Christ, do it right now. 
Offer up a prayer, simple prayer. There's no magical formula. In essence, you just basically agree with God that you're a sinner and say, I want to have you, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior. I will follow you. Bible says, then you will be saved. Contact us at the church. Contact me, contact another pastor, contact a leader, contact another a Christian in the church so that we can help you in this. Let me welcome you in to the family of God this Easter 2020. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time to preach your word. I pray, Lord, that you would elevate our hope in you more through this. I pray, Lord, that Easter means a whole lot more to us now. I pray, Lord, that you would be the treasure of our lives, Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, that we would know that all things are lost compared to knowing you. Jesus, you're better than anything else. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would know that we are secure in your son, Jesus Christ, for eternal life. I pray for those who do not know you, that they will turn to you and repent of their sins and call on your son for forgiveness of their sins. Father, I pray for special encouragement to those who are suffering uniquely right now. I pray for greater experience of the power of your resurrection so that they will know you more, so that they will, they will become more like you. Lord, I thank you for this truth out of Philippians. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.